live from Tel Aviv, two nice Jewish boys. Hi, I'm Noor Menninger. And I'm Eitan Weinstein. For decades upon decades, throughout the existence of our young, ambitious country, one big existential question persisted. Many wise men and women have tried to find the answer, yet failed. But for any Israeli, this question stands at the core of their very existence. What is Israeli food? Is our national dish hummus or falafel? And are those even ours? What makes our food special and why? And can an endless blend of cultures, herbs, and secret ingredients all be part of one coherent food culture? To answer these mind-boggling questions, we have with us today one of Israel's greatest experts in food and food culture. Gil Chovav has been a regular guest in every Israeli household for over 20 years. He's a pioneer of the televised cooking shows here in Israel. He's a food journalist and author of many cooking books and some novels as well. Gil is also a lover of the Hebrew language, son of legendary news anchor Moshe Chovav, and great-grandson of one of the most important figures in modern Zionism, Eliezer Ben Yehuda, reviver of the Hebrew language. This podcast is made in cooperation with the Jewish Journal, www.jewishjournal.com. Also in cooperation with Secret Tel Aviv, Israel's largest online social network community in English. Just look for the group on Facebook or visit them at secrettelaviv.com. Subscribe to Two Nice Jewish Boys on iTunes. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to rate us. And of course, we want to hear your feedback. So let us know what you think in the comments or send us a message on Facebook. Hi, Gil. How are you? Hello. Shalom. Shalom, shalom to both shalom, of you. Shalom. Thank I'm, you for coming. I'm yeah. fine. I'm good. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, it's kind of an embarrassment that after I read that that intro, I'm like, hello, instead of shalom. <laughs> this is why I make yeah. a point of saying shalom. <laughs> That's nice. That's <laughs> nice. So, okay, so maybe you can answer this question for us. What is Israeli food? Well, you have put the, 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 the seeds of the, um, let's say, bewilderment in the question because it is... A very big mix and a very big bordel and a very big um, water sport park of food <laughs> um, coming from more than 60 different ethnicities. But I believe that this is very Israeli because I think that this is what Israel is. So let's say if we look at North America and we see the United States as a melting pot and Canada is a quilt, Israel is neither. It's just a big mishmash. <laughs> Everything works together. Somehow it's a big chaos, a big functional chaos. Yeah. Eventually something happens. And I think that this is our charm. Uh-huh. The fact that our cooking is ruthless and, and, and not low-abiding at all and and very creative and very fresh, yet looking to the past, this is Israel. But is there a food that you can say is, because, I mean, you say falafel, and then, you know, I think, is that even Israeli? Nope. Salat falafel is definitely even, Egyptian. Yeah, and then Salat Aravi we even call Salat Aravi and yeah. hummus. No, Salat Aravi is a great way to know whether you're a good guy or a right-winger, okay. because right-wingers call it Salat Israeli, uh, no. and good guys call it Salat Aravi, because okay. the origins are Arab. Maybe I'm a good right-winger. <laughs> well, we'll have to see that. You'll have to make an effort here. Okay. <laughs> 
But is there one, is there a food now after, I don't know, 60, 70 years or maybe back then that you could say is Israeli? Nope. No. Simply, no. First of all, I don't believe that cuisines, national cuisines, form within a century. It takes more. Mm. Uh, so you can definitely say that there is Jewish food, not necessarily Eastern European, of course. Arab Jewish food, American Jewish food, this Jewish food, that Jewish food. But Israeli? No, we're too young for that. So there's no relation between Jewish food and Israeli food at all? Um, of course there is. If you look at uh, the food map of Israel today, Unfortunately, it's getting more kosher than it used to be. But, <laughs> You're uh, touching a soft spot here. Yes, <laughs> it's a sensitive spot. Yeah. Um, Israel used to be more non-kosher than, any, than it is now. But with the big wave of Russian immigration, for instance, pork was introduced into our kitchens because, um, let's say, 25 years ago, it was really difficult to find pork. butchers who sold pork nowadays you can find it even in so in some supermarkets what did you need to do back in the day to get pork uh I, <laughs> to tell you the truth in my family in jerusalem you had to go to the one butcher shop that sold pork and hope that the religious community did not burn it that week oh, okay. so was so every other the, week they yeah every, <laughs> every odd week it was burned just like the grave of eliezer ben yudav my great-grandfather every Every year, it's, it's uh, desecrated by really? the ultra-Orthodox community in Jerusalem. I did not know that. Yes, yes, yes. All the tombstones in our uh, burial plot are uh, smashed and nasty graffitis in tar. That's Everything. how they spend their weekends? Pork butchers and Eliezer Ben Yehuda is great. They have nothing Jerusalem better to do. Fun? Isn't Jerusalem fun? Isn't Jerusalem a great city? <laughs> It's sucks. happening. That sucks. <laughs> yeah. But wasn't there that famous law in Israel? I mean, to me, this is just a myth because I've never actually checked it out, but that you weren't allowed to... The law is that you can't grow pigs on the land and then they introduced this idea where... Platform. Yeah, where they yes, put them on yes, a platform. Yes, yes, the kibbutzim. You, you have Lahav, you have another kibbutz Mizra. in the north. Mizra. They built platforms. There. And it's still like that? Yeah, because in Israel, what we do is we cheat God. <laughs> This is what we do. This is the Jewish thing, the Israeli Jewish thing. So oh, it's been so for generations. Women are supposed to cover their hair, so they put elaborate wigs, right? Yeah. That, that look even better than their hair. We're not supposed to use electricity on Saturdays, so we invented all these machines that turn on just one split second before Saturday, and yeah. then it's or kosher. Or we simply bring an Arab to do or it. Or we, we simply bring an Arab, or uh, uh, I, nowadays Christian. it's uh, someone from Africa, yeah. I don't yes. know. Um, so pork, no mm-hmm. pork on the land of Israel. Okay, 20 centimeters on top of the land of Israel, and it's good. It's fine. Yeah. Keep the land holy. Yes. So... You're saying that there is relation between Jewish cuisine and Israeli cuisine. Yes, and I'm it... not saying that, that kosher cuisine is not good, because of course it's delicious, but mathematically it's inferior, because, or combinatorically it's inferior, because you cannot you know, do all the, the mixtures of dairy and meat, etc., or you, you can use less produce when you cook kosher. So um, you're... somehow the boundaries of the kosher cuisine are, are a bit tighter than, than the general cuisine. And uh, I think that in Israel we have enlarged it. We have opened new windows and new balconies to new vistas. Yes. Uh-huh. And so and you were talking about the Russians. Mm-hmm. So we're talking early 90s. So with each immigration wave uh, that came here, we saw... 
we felt it in our kitchen yes you would definitely, say definitely and and uh, the Russians were not the last we we have the Ethiopians yes. with the injera and uh, you know Ethiopian food is really amazing vegan food not that they don't have meat but usually they're too poor to buy it so the the, the vegan version of Ethiopian food now is so strangely hip I mean yeah. you go on the, <laughs> on the streets of Tel Aviv you see Ethiopian restaurants that are really 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 out there and hip and happening and at the, That's because at the for forefront those... of the Israeli cuisine yeah just because they didn't have the the, the, the money to buy ingredients for something so that here in Tel Aviv. Cooler. Every second guy or girl are vegan nowadays. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we need to explain that too. You have touched a very but sensitive Aviv, point again. <laughs> but, but Tel Aviv is really, I mean, it has become sort of a food tourism destination. I mean, it's one, it's, I don't know how high up it is, you know, and how you even rank those kind of things. But it's known as a place you come and eat good food. It's an amazing, amazing, happy zoo mm-hmm. of food. It's great. And, you know, I do food tours in Tel Aviv to chefs and to foodies from all over the world. They're just in shock when you walk the streets of Tel Aviv and you see the amount of restaurants that are so diverse and the markets are so fun and, and everything is so colorful and fresh and good. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really a fun foodie city. And yeah. is it really that different from Berlin, for example? Or? Yes, yes. Why? I think, even from New York, not that I'm saying that Tel Aviv is bigger, but again, if you look at the European or North American uh, vision of what a city is, it would be built of ghettos or, or you know, special places for this, special places for that. In Israel, it's all mixed, even in the same place. Restaurant. So we have invented this appalling idea of serving Thai food in baguette. Nobody <laughs> does it. Nobody does it. It's either Thai or French. Yes. But we do the mixture. So, uh, so it's also, you wouldn't find, let's say, like 6th Street of, of Manhattan in which you have, I don't know, 50 Indian restaurants in one, on one street. Never in Tel Aviv. In Tel Aviv, you'd have... A shishi cocktail bar next to a hummus place, next to a foreign worker Sudanese restaurant, next, next to, high to end, the uh, high-end, yeah. I don't know, pan-Asian restaurant yeah, in which you pay, you know, your salary Not for to mention schnitzel in baguette, which is by itself... Uh, schnitzel in baguette, this is what we this grew can, up on. Come yeah, on, this, this is... could start a war in Europe, I think. <laughs> no, it's like... <laughs> um, but, but then, what is it? I'll, ref- I'll try to... Rephrase the question then. What is it about Jews and food in, in the first place? Yeah, there's the classic like, idea that uh, every Jewish festival is, uh, they tried to kill us, we didn't die, let's eat. Yep, yep. So it's, it's always surrounding food. It's true. You know, I think that it is true about uh, first, and generation, first and second generation for immigration because I who was lucky enough to, to grow up in a family that all of my great-grandparents were born in Israel, Palestine or in Israel or in this region at least, we didn't have it at home. We didn't have this eat, 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 you must eat, the, the plate must be full, you really? should finish up from your plate. It was never the case in my family. I think it's a matter of being sure of where you live, of being sure that your country is yours, of being sure that tomorrow will bring good news, etc. 
That we won't and, die tomorrow. Exactly. <laughs> there is not going to be a war. There's not going to be a siege tomorrow, etc., etc., etc. So this is very Jewish, of course. Uh, it's very diaspora Jewish. It's not Israeli. And I see a great difference here between Israelis and Jews in their diaspora. But even in diaspora, we had our own cuisine, right? Mm -hmm. And our cuisine, in some cases, influenced the local cuisine. Of course. And so we had to think about, about food even then, I, I guess, right? Yes, but let me break the news to you. Everybody has something with food. Yeah, so it's not ours. At, <laughs> if you look at Italian culture or Irish culture or German culture, French culture, of course, Arab culture, of course, food is always very important because food is our food. Yeah, it's our life. Yes. I But just, there is yeah. something in Judaism where can put it on the festivals table. Are, are, you know, they surround food, meaning on Passover, we sit down and we, we sit down around where? We sit down around the dinner table. You know, the Christians, they, on their holidays, they go to church mm. and maybe they get a little bit of Jesus's flesh in their mouth. But like, other than that, they're not like sitting around a dinner table. Mm -hmm. You know, they, we sit around a dinner table on Passover, on Rosh Hashanah, and it's always around like, well, I, I, it's I, like we can't keep away. I beg to differ. I think that Thanksgiving is all about sitting yeah. around the table. Ramadan is all about eating and eating They and took eating it from and us, eating I'm and sure. eating. <laughs> I'm not too sure about that. <laughs> And uh, not to mention, you know, holidays of uh, Southeast Asia. Uh -huh. Holidays and food go together. Yeah. So you mentioned your roots. Yep. Um, so in both sides, you are quite a few generations in Israel, even the Yemenite uh, side? Yes. They all came to Israel on the 19th century. Uh -huh. So it's either in the beginning of the 19th century or, let's say, towards the end, but... On the 20th century, we've all been here already. So no Arabic in your household when you grew up? A lot of Arabic, of A lot course. of Arabic. <laughs> yes, because um, first of all, if you grew up in Jerusalem, let's say in my parents' generation, you had to know Arabic. And also, I learned Arabic in school because as I was taught, it's the most beautiful, cultured, smart, and, and sharp and fine language in the world. So you I, were taught that by whom? By my teachers who all won the Israel Prize and who all were Russians and Hungarians. But they always told us, <laughs> if you seek the well of wisdom and the climate of beauty, uh, not the climate, the, the, the epitaph of beauty, look at Arabic, which really? is true, by the way. It's the greatest language. It's so bigger than Hebrew, and I'm very proud of Hebrew, as you may know. Yeah, your great-grandfather... Uh, yes, did over. a lot for the language, <laughs> yes. yes. And the language did a lot for him. But really, comparing Hebrew to Arabic is like comparing Liechtenstein to the United States. Hebrew is just a drop, and Arabic is the ocean. The ocean of wisdom and beauty and, and, and such wealth of culture. So anyway, my grandmother grew up in a house in which they spoke either Ladino, the Spanish Yiddish, mm -hmm. yes, yes, or Moroccan. And our maid, our, we had two maids. So one was speaking Moroccan and one was speaking Arabic. My grandmother was speaking both languages to both of them. So for me, the sounds of, of Moroccan Arabic or Palestinian Arabic are the sounds of childhood. 
I just want to focus on your Yemenite side because yes. I'm not sure how much our audience abroad, especially in the United States, is familiar with Yemenite Jewry. Mm-hmm. So what's the story about the, that um, subculture of Judaism? Uh, what, what, did, what were they doing in Yemen and what did they bring with them from so there? So it was, it was uh, you know, Yemenites, Jewish Yemenites lived in Yemen for centuries and centuries. Uh, the first big wave of immigration was in uh, towards the end of the 19th century. This is when my ancestors walked all the way, uh, all the Arab Peninsula towards Palestine and settled in Jerusalem in Silwan. In, uh, before the, that's before Zionism. Way before Zionism, yes. So why the hell would they do that? Because Jews, you know, it's like, uh, you know, Jews in North Africa were always longing to... to Jerusalem, before the, the Zionist movement yeah. in, in Eastern Europe that was a political movement was something different. This was a political secular movement. Jewish longing for Jerusalem was always there. was always there. And they came just because they, want, they wanted to be close to God, I would assume. They wanted to be in Jerusalem. It's unimaginable for um, us, I think. It's it's and it's Everything a big about big it. big wave of immigration. It's not you know two or three families. These were dozens of thousands of people, and uh, they were always very poor. People usually tend to think that falafel is Yemenite because all of the falafel vendors were Yemenites, but it was just because they were poor and this <laughs> is cheap food and they were street vendors. So. Um, Falafel is, as you said, Egyptian? Egyptian. Oh, uh, the, okay. the, the original falafel is called Tamiya. Mm-hmm. This is uh, the Egyptian name. And it's a bit different than the general falafel. Our falafel and across the Middle East falafel is made from chickpeas, while in Egypt it's made from fava beans, from dried oh, okay. fava beans. It's, it's much better, by the way. It's really, really, really good. Um, so, so, yes. Yeah, so, Yemenite Jews did a lot for Israel, did a lot for Zionism, were always poor, um, were always very good singers. What foods (laughs) did they bring with them from? What foods Uh, did you grow up with? Lots of baked goods. Uh The the, the joke is that Yemenites have only flour, water, and oil. That's it. Uh And from this, they make like 127 different dishes. (laughs) Um, So if you ask me what my favorite dish in the world is, it's called Kubane. It's a traditional... Uh, 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 bread that's baked overnight on Friday night and this is the festive Shabbat brunch you eat it with uh, condiments like uh, uh, crushed tomatoes and sahug which is sort of a Yemenite hot salsa and uh, the nice uh, Yemenite proverb says when Kubane is on the table all other breads should kneel down because it's really the queen of breads. And it's true. We have it in the Tikva market, mm-hmm. right? Uh, only on Fridays, only right? Only on Fridays, yes, yes in yes. the Yemenite Nowadays, place. Nowadays, it's getting very posh. You know, they serve it in, in New York as well because yeah. Meir Adoni, a very big chef from Israel, was serving it in his restaurant and took it over to New York. Yes. So they call it a Yemenite brioche. No. By foot brioche. <laughs> not, it's Kubane. <laughs> no, not, far, not far is the day where um, they'll have uh, a Jachnun places just yes. for Jachnun in New York in, uh, yes. I don't know, in serve little jachnuns and they'll call them jachnunet, you know. Yeah, they'll call oh them uh, Yemenite baguettes. Yes. <laughs> Wet Yemenite baguettes. <laughs> um, okay, so what, what other... I'm sure the, the Yemenite food influenced your cooking. 
And so what other foods did you grow up with and how did it how did it work its way into your kitchen? So so my story is a bit bizarre. Mm-hmm. I come from a quite well-to-do family. So as I mentioned, we had two maids and my grandmother who came from one of the richest families in Israel and none of the money is with us unfortunately, but she learned how to cook from the servants. In the old Jerusalemite house she was Which living family in. is that, by the way? It's the Abushdid family. It's a North African family. Uh-huh. Um, Tunisian by origin. And uh, so she cooked what she called servant food and we call jail food. Like, you know, <laughs> rice and beans or okra. And it's very, 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 very simple fare. And my mother never cooked because my mother was a career woman. So we grew up on poor man's food, but really dirt poor man's food. But since both my parents were career people, we used to eat out a lot, a lot, like, I don't know, three or four times a week in Jerusalem of the 60s. This was unheard of. This is what gave me the sort of education for being a restaurant critic, because, Mm -hmm. you know, a restaurant, you cannot learn how to be a restaurant critic, but you you should have the ability to compare. Mm -hmm. So... For instance, if you order, I don't know, a chicken Kiev, you should know what it is. And preferably, you should have eaten it in Kiev, too, to know how it's traditionally done. And then to to look at the, I don't know, at the foofy chef version that does it with, I don't know, gold Mm -hmm. leaves and uh, (laughs) who knows, Zata or something dreadful (laughs) like that. So, um, So I wouldn't say that I absorbed a lot of recipes at home. I, for me, food is connected to love because it's connected to my grandmother. We, as it was put to us, she wasn't living with us. We were living with her in the same apartment (laughs) and she cooked. And as the youngest grandchild uh, and a wimp, I was always with her. (laughs) And uh, so the day she died, when I was 20 years old, um... I started cooking just to remember her, just to remember her flavors. And until today, that's the main function of your cooking? Yes. And I cook very, very, very simple food. This is, you know, I did many TV series. One of the biggest of, of, of my TV series was called Captain Cook. It was, it was about traveling the world only through three Michelin star restaurants. Mm-hmm. So I did, wow. what, 24 or, or 30 episodes of this Serious. I, I I really was all all over the globe eating. You know, all the... my food is jail food. This is what I love. This is. If you ask me, if you wake me up in the middle of, of the night and say, "What do you want to eat?" It would be Kubane. It wouldn't be, you know, <laughs> something that. Uh, I don't know, some cushion with of, gold no, no, flakes. No, 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 God forbid. God so, forbid. so you can go to jail and, and be fine, basically. Yes, definitely. And, <laughs> it's a uh, dangerous man. Now you have to guess, <laughs> since you mentioned it. Where have I been in jail? In which country in the world have I spent time in jail? And I'll give you a hint. It's not Israel. And if you guess, you get a free round trip to Rio de Janeiro. And I'm not talking peasant class in El Al. You're going to get business class tickets in Lufthansa. Wait, from two nice Jewish boys? Because we don't have those kind of funds. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. I'm going. You are going to guess and I'm going to pay. You said in jail. But each of you has only one guess. Okay. I, I have I have my guess. Go. I, I don't know why <laughs> Japan. You're looking at a guy who just lost a business no. trip to Rio de Janeiro. I will say 
Portugal. <laughs> you made a, Yemenan, a Yemenite man laugh. <laughs> the <Yeah>. Vatican. <laughs> the Vatican. <laughs> Because look at it this way. Doing food television can get a bit boring or at least repetitive. I mean, how many times can you fake orgasms and say this is the best pasta, the best gnocchi, the best cannelloni? It's boring. Yeah. So since I write the scripts of my shows as well, I try to add history and background and, you know. So I said, before we talk about the pasta dish, let's talk about what the Pope likes to eat. So we were in the Vatican. I was dressed as the a Swiss guard of the Pope. You know how they're dressed? They yeah, look like Arlecchinos with, with bells. Yeah. And, then a, and I was dressed like this and I was doing my lead. And then a police car stops next to us and says, and who are you? And we say, we're doing a food show. We say, yes, of course, with this, with this costume. To jail. Turns out that <sighs> if you want to shoot... On the street at the Vatican, you have to pay $5,000, oh. which I would like to say that my producer didn't know. I'm sure they did know, but they wanted yeah. to avoid it. They didn't. They and have no shame after everything they did to us, the Vatican. <laughs> they throw us to jail too. <laughs> It's the 21st they century. They should return the menorah before they... <laughs> exactly. Before they dare do such... <laughs> I, thought, I thought you said something about the Pope or something while you were eating. <laughs> I thought you were going to check if, he, if she indeed cheats in the wood. Uh, <laughs> that, that would... Yes, or is the bear Catholic? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so uh, Gil, every uh, once in a while, we try to promote Israeli musicians who do songs and music in English because we have a great and beautiful scene of young musicians who do music in English. And today we have Hagar Levy, who uh, had her debut album released two years ago, and now she has a new uh, EP. And we will listen to a song of hers. I forgot its name. It's written here. You Must Have a Woman. Oh, my God. By Hagar Levy. This is what you chose for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Here it is. have a woman I can just feel it how can it be you're just so sweet there must be someone stirring your sugar every night and she breaks your
was Hagar Levy and she's on Bandcamp and you can get her album and she has a Facebook page so check it out and we're back with Gil Chovav and Eitan you want to ask something our guest um, so you've already told us what your favorite dish is personally yep but if you're if you're hosting someone mm-hmm. and you're trying to impress them <laughs> what, what dish do you think you'll so, uh, usually it would be Um, simple Sephardian Moroccan dishes that I know mm-hmm. from the jail food that I used to have at home. But I have a few rules. As a restaurant critic, never, ever take a Persian guy to a Persian restaurant, a Polish aunt to a Polish restaurant, because their mother always did it differently and did it better. So they're always disappointed. So this mm-hmm. is one. If you have, let's say... Syrian guests don't ever try to make calzones or, or other serious stuff because Syrian stuff because you just won't make it right Calzone in Syrian? Serious it, It's ah, calzones serious. It's not calzone Calzone <laughs> is Italian Yeah, I'm like But cal- calzones are, are sort of Syrian dumplings Okay Once I, I, I try to, to find which is the cuisine that enslaves the woman most Syrian cuisine The cuisine of Aleppo, for sure. It's so sickly super sophisticated that, that it's just, you die. I mean, you now work it, on now a pastry for... Now they literally die. Yes, now they literally <laughs> die, but I don't think that they cook anymore. I don't think they were making calzone as well. No, no, no. But, but you really, you work like for 48 hours on making one dish. It's, 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 you must have servants and many to uh-huh, make it uh-huh. or, or to be really addicted to cooking. So this is one rule. Another rule is never make, you know, something new mm-hmm. when you have guests. Never, ever. Don't try on your guests a dish for the first time because give it, you know, two or three rounds before you serve it. So usually when people come over to, to my place to eat, it would be either Yemenite food or Moroccan food or Sephardi food, which is, you know, non-Ashkenazi Jewish food or just simple stuff that I like and that I'm sure of how to make it. Mm-hmm. And if we may diverse to talk about 
again about your heritage yes. and about uh, the home you grew up in mm-hmm. and about Eliezer Ben Yehuda. Mm-hmm. So who was Eliezer Ben Yehuda? He was, he was the, your, mo- your mother's My father. My maternal great-grandfather. Your mother's father was the, his son? Yes. So Eliezer Ben Yehuda, the reviver of Hebrew, was born in Lithuania in 1858. His first son was Itamar Ben Avi, already born in Jerusalem. Eliezer Ben Yehuda was a Zionist 20 years before Herzl. So, well, respect. Yes. Uh, Itamar Ben Avi's eldest daughter is my mother. So I am the great-grandson of Eliezer Ben Yehuda. Eliezer Ben Yehuda revived Hebrew. Hebrew was totally dead up until a little more than 100 years ago. Just like Latin today, completely dead. Nobody spoke it. Was Nobody. he crazy to do that? He was totally crazy. He was really, <laughs> you know, he was a prophet. And I'm full of admiration to him. Of course, I never met him. He died the year my mother was born. But uh, he really was a prophet. And he really changed the world. But... The thing is that living next to revolutionists and prophets is not fun. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't fun being Che Guevara's girl. And I'm sure (laughs) it wasn't fun being Eliezer Ben Yudah's wife. And he had two who were sisters. They all admired him, by the way. They all admired him. His children admired him. But he was a very, very, very tough and difficult man. Very short very sensitive about respect, very ill, had tuberculosis all his life, was coughing blood. And uh, it's because of him that you guys and I sit now in an independent Jewish state, although it was totally secular, but the state of the Jewish nation, not of the Jewish religion, uh, that we have our own Hebrew culture, that my daughter, when she wakes up in the morning, well, I want to say she says, I love you in Hebrew, but she says, get out of this room now, <laughs> in Hebrew, <laughs> and close the door. And um, It's a scary daughter. Yeah, uh, <laughs> children are scary in general. <laughs> um, again, we owe it to him. We owe it to him. So what we drove him? Um, well... What was he thinking? Two things. And two things that are, of course, in contrast. One, he was, oh, let's say, a, pro- a product of the Haskalah movement. He believed in um, rationalism and pure thought. It was totally, totally, totally secular. And the second is that he writes in his memoir that one night, in the middle of the night, there was a lightning in the sky and the big voice thundered upon him, the revival of the Jewish people in its own state. And he knew that this was his vocation. And he wanted to replant Hebrew in the Middle East in order to replant Jews in the Middle East. Which was unheard of because, Jew- because Hebrew was per- perceived as a language of, of the Torah. You should not speak it and, in everyday life. And this is why he it was, was persecuted by the ultra-Orthodox, not by the religious Jews in Israel, who just didn't care about him, but the ultra-Orthodox community in Jerusalem gave him hell. I mean... He they, lived in Jerusalem. He lived in Jerusalem, of course. Uh, they, you know, told the Ottoman rulers of the country that he was a British spy and he was 
uh, in jail for a year, a man with tuberculosis. They refused to bury his wife and his children in a Jewish cemetery. They would throw stones at him on the street. They killed my grandfather's dog. And uh, oh and, uh, my, and Eliezer Ben Yudah buried the dog in the yard and wrote on the tombstone, here lies the first Hebrew dog. And, uh, <laughs> so yes. he was not a religious man himself? Not at all. Just the complete were, opposite. And he... Just like myself. He came from, from Yemen or he was, his he was parents? A, no, no, no. From uh, Lithuania. He, he's from the European so side, but okay. he was a he was a yeshiva bucher. He ah, was okay. a ilui. He was a talmid chacham. Uh-huh. He knew he... the Bible by heart. He knew the Talmud by heart. So he when he picked words, let's just say what he did, because we didn't really talk about it. Mm-hmm. When he invented words that were missing, mm-hmm. he knew they were missing because he knew they don't appear in the Bible. Or he took words from the Bible that he knew that had no meaning. For and... instance, let's take the word. The Hebrew word Hashmal. Hashmal is yes. electricity. So yeah. obviously there was no Hashmal in the Bible, right? Yeah. Now Hashmal appears in the Bible twice in two prophecies. So first of all, it's a very difficult word because it has no root and it, it appears only twice in the Bible. Usually you can compare, you know, and see how it behaves in other places, but only twice it's very difficult. But it 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 is used for some divine spark. In the prophecy. And he said, this is electricity. And up until today, we say Hashmal and we pay our Hashmal bills yeah. because of my great-grandfather. So how, was, how did he practice it? He sat down for days and nights and, and... First of all, he didn't sit down. He stood up. Okay. At the time, we're talking about the, uh, the very late 19th century and early 20th century. Uh, you weren't sitting down to a desk. You were standing next to it. Desks were higher. You were... You would respect your your work or uh-huh. your labor. Um, he would invent uh, invent or recreate or revive words every day and every night, eighteen hours a day. Eighteen. Eighteen hours a day. His second wife uh, embroidered a little tapestry that was hung on the wall in front of his face, saying, Hayom katsar v'amelacha meruba, day is short and work is plentiful. And uh, the, the aim was to, to publish the big Hebrew dictionary, which I don't know if you've ever seen the Ben Yudah dictionary. It's, it's immense. It looks like the Encyclopedia Britannica. It's huge. This is something that, 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 states take upon themselves to do not one sickly person and he did it by himself he started it by himself he died of course again he did not believe in god but he died when he was sort of in the middle of the hebrew alphabet in the letter nun working on the entry neshama soul so he returned his soul <laughs> Which is so i wouldn't popular say now. to the creator yes yeah he was a uh, he was the first uh, <laughs> kabbalistic fufi jewish person in israel um he returned his soul to whoever to the universe let's say yeah. when he was working on the entry soul he did not see the dictionary in print he saw only five volumes of the 21 volumes of the dictionary in print later on it was carried out, out by his widow and children and Amazing. so he didn't i mean it's it baffling to me that he didn't believe in god but then he has this prophecy mm-hmm. 
that this this voice from heaven is so but... to tell you the truth yeah. i suspect that he tried to create drama i don't believe that you really heard this voice okay. in the night but it's a it's a nice story not unlike <laughs> our original prophets by the way but that's a matter uh, yes, of another let's, discussion let us <laughs> give them the benefit of the okay. doubt <laughs> so how many words did he actually invent Do we know? I, I don't really know. We may know. I don't know. Hundreds, Hebrew, thousands. Oh, I would assume that hundreds. Hebrew is a very small language. Mm-hmm. Up until today, it's very vivid, but it's, it's, it's small. So I, don't th- I, I can't say that he revived thousands of words. Etc. People did not need thousands of words. People needed words in order to work in the vineyards of Rehovot, or to build the Akot's fat root, etc. So the, the, the vocabulary was very small and very slim, but it was very, very, very useful. But since then, I mean, Hebrew, like any language, has started evolving and taking a life of its own. Mm-hmm. Do we know how, like, how much it's grown since he, oh, you know? It's, it's much bigger oh, than okay. it was in his uh, days. Again, The work of the dictionary is so immense because each word is compared to at least six different Semitic languages that mm-hmm. he knew by heart. So, so it, it's huge. It's just a, 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 the magnitude of the dictionary. Is, is, he was declared by UNESCO as one of the Western civilization's greatest figures together with Haydn and Newton in a very really? big ceremony in Paris. He six Semitic languages? Not to mention other European languages. So was, how like, do you call it? Omnilingual? Uh, there's a... Polyglot. Polyglot. It was a polyglot. Mm. But at the time, at the, we're, we're talking about an era in which everybody was a polyglot. They did not know... I don't know, th- these dead Semitic languages, but growing up in Jerusalem in the 19th century, I guess people would be speaking Arabic, Yiddish, French, and maybe English. So, so you know, my grandmother, who was, you know, from a very good family and a very well-educated young lady, but she spoke six languages. Uh-huh. With... Did, he, did he have any education in linguistics or any sort of formal... No. No, no. He, he studied everything by himself. His only wow. education was uh, in the Cheder, in the Jewish uh, school. Later on, he was sent to Paris, to the Sorbonne, to study medicine by um, his father-in-law. He took the money, went to Paris, <laughs> wrote letters that the studies are wonderful, <laughs> didn't enter the Sorbonne even once. You see, Eitan, you have a future, although <laughs> you don't have a degree. Yeah, he uses like, this trick up yeah, until today. <laughs> but I haven't worked on any languages. Yeah. <laughs> We're still waiting for your dictionary. <laughs> so, yeah. Gil, you are known in Israel as the sensei of Israeli cheap eateries. No, I'm known as, in Israel as the voice of Ben-Gurion. Come on, I'm a huge <laughs> celebrity. I'm the annoying person who speaks on the speakers and says, don't leave your luggage unattended. Oh, yeah, I wanted This to say... This is my claim to fame. <laughs> I wanted to say that if the entire show you're going mad trying to figure out where do you know this voice from, <laughs> Gil is the voice of Ben-Gurion Airport. Yes. But you are known in Israel as the king of, of cheap eateries in Israel. You yes. are a master of it. So I was wondering if you can... Tell us about your favorite cheap place to eat in Tel Aviv and in Jerusalem. Okay, let's start with Jerusalem. There's an amazing place in the Machane Yehuda market called Ishtabach. Uh, it serves uh, a dish, a pastry that's called Shamburak that's served only there. Shamburak is, comes from She Mevorach, Blessed. 
because it's a dish. It's a sort of a Syrian Kurdish Najdidan um, food. So all sorts of small Jewish communities of, let's say, the northern Middle East. Um, it's made from leftovers of the Shabbat dinner. Mm-hmm. Later on during the week, you use them as filling for a very good pastry with a very, very, very sophisticated dough that has to rise eight times before you can use it. And Sounds it's Syrian. made only, only, only in this restaurant in the, in the Machane Yehuda market and by a guy who's, first of all, the sweetest guy in Jerusalem and also one of the biggest Michiganers in Jerusalem. And you know that Jerusalem was blessed with many. <laughs> so how did I get to know this restaurant? One day I was walking the street on Machane Yehuda and I see this guy bearded, looks like a sort of a funky Haredi, dancing like mad on the pavement, staying alive by the Bee Gees. Dancing, <laughs> dancing, dancing. It was like seven and a half in the morning. Okay, the song ends. He rushes back to the restaurant, plays it again, and dances it again. By the third time he did it, the same song, I came and I said, what's going on here? And he said, listen, I'm hyperactive. And I know it. If I don't start the day with eight times staying alive on the pavement, I'm crazy all day. So this is how I get my energy out and then I can bake. <laughs> want to taste? I wanted to taste and it's a great place and it's kosher. Uh, so this is Ishtabach in Jerusalem. In Tel Aviv, uh, oh, the choice is so difficult because there are so many good restaurants. Um, I would say... Where would you go now if you could? This very minute... I I would love to have like a very good Tripolitan couscous, but it wouldn't be in Tel Aviv. Mm. It would be in Petah Tikva. Okay. So there was a place called... I really love Tripolitan food, Libyan food, because yes. it's sort of Jewish soul food. It's always very fat and very red and very thick and very heavy and like it's real. Prison real, real food. food. <laughs> yes, exactly, like in the Vatican. <laughs> so um, there was an amazing uh, Tripolitan restaurant called Bechor et Shoshi in Pardeskach, which is actually a neighborhood of Bnei Brak adjacent to Petah Tikva. Shoshi left to Petah Tikva, so now it's in Petah Tikva on Jabotinsky Street. But there's also an amazing Tripolitan restaurant in Or Yehuda, mm-hmm. which is a great restaurant city next to Tel Aviv, on the way, let's say, to the airport. So it's either... Hamitbach shel Ima, Mama's Kitchen in Or Yehuda, or Bechor et Shoshi in Petah Tikva. And okay. quickly, yes. I hit you with this question. What is the best falafel in Israel? I cannot <laughs> answer this because I've reached an age, you know, I'm 55 years old, in which it's immoral to eat falafel. Okay. Like an elderly Yemenite person cannot eat falafel anymore because... I would look so bad if I eat falafel. <laughs> so I must you have a admit, sadly, that I haven't had falafel for okay, maybe five fair years. Enough, fair enough, fair enough. But I can give you the best hummus in Israel. Yes, okay. For, I think it's Akramawi. It's across the street from uh, Damascus Gate in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. It's an Arab hummus, and it's really good. Okay, so before we go, I want to say that we are cooperating with the Jewish Journal of Greater Los Angeles, which is a great newspaper, um, Jewish newspaper and a website in uh, Los Angeles. And 
Uh, we are cooperating with a Facebook group, which is called Secret Tel Aviv. It's a community of 150,000 um People, mainly English speakers who live here, uh, Olim, and they talk about and converse about Tel Aviv and life here. So it's a great community and you're all invited to join this group. And that was it. You are as charming in real life as in TV, which is not obvious, I think. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Thank you and very, very a, much. Such a great pleasure. Thank you. It was Thank a you. pleasure and uh, I'm going to have some questions. Okay. <laughs> Us too. Okay.